Hey guys, this is Chris Bircher with Knowledge Plus Experience Equals Wisdom, and this is episode 52, Hard and Soft Realities. All right, what do I mean by that? So as I think through the R versus should problem, which if you have been paying attention in episode 50, I started down this pathway of trying to understand what I consider to be uh, one of the greatest struggles uh, of the human condition, of being human, is the struggle between the person that you are and the person that you feel like you should be. And the main difference there is that, you know, the person that you are is the person that you're born as with all of the traits and sort of likes and dislikes and tendencies. And of course, as we grow, that changes. But these changes can occur by through the process of free will and choice, or these changes can just occur sort of passively. So it's something Some things have happened to us. The person that we are, the personal inventory that you put out on the table in episode 51 is the result of choices you've made and things that have happened to you, either subconsciously or without really thinking about it, or things that have just become habits. And there's several episodes that I reference these ideas, and I'll list those in the blog post for episode 52 on my website. So hard and soft realities, what does that mean? Well, I sort of am... I'm looking to define my credentials to discuss this problem, and I think my credentials follow a bifurcated path that I think is sort of the first step. So you sort of got reality, which are these things that happen to us, that are presented to us from the outside world, about which we make decisions and we incorporate into our personal inventory. These can... You know, the the first split is that some of these things are hard, measurable, science, numbers, math, made of matter, physical, and some of these things are soft. Ideas, thoughts, emotions, um, you know, uh, it's the classic sort of atoms are measurable. We can't really get our head around antimatter yet because there's nothing there. You know, it's, it's physical things and then the space between those two things. And traditionally... We've used a couple of, again, umbrella categories for tools to study these things. One is science. Let's call let's call the hard reality measuring tool science. And on the other side, things get a little bit more weird because we haven't really figured this one out nearly as much. But it's also because that world is much more infinite <laughs> than than the physical world. Uh, and we th- use things like religion and spirituality and psychology and philosophy and some of the softer sciences, even, even sociology. So a lot of these things over on the soft reality side are still sciences. And they still use the scientific method as a tool, but many hardcore scientists would argue that they're doing that wrong. Uh, and I don't know if it's worth including an example here, but as an ecologist, you know, I bring a 20-year career in the sciences in, in, in a very broad sense. I wasn't, you know, studying one tiny little thing. I was studying planetary dynamics uh, across spatial and temporal scales. So I, I consider myself to be sort of a holistic scientist. Um, but many people would say that ecology wasn't real science because I you can't replicate, and this is Again, maybe not worth discussing because it, ecology didn't adhere to some of the fundamental assumptions and rules of science. And that was that the samples you take when you measure things, because you can't measure everything, follow a, a certain mathematical distribution 
And that means they represent the real world. But in ecology, since I can only, there's only one earth, there's only one earth climate to measure. So I can't replicate that. I can do it through time and I can make some changes, but the hardcore scientists will say you can't even do that. So you might even put ecology over in the soft side and you might only have in the hard sciences things like bench top chemistry. Um, I don't know. Even, even physics, because can we really measure the weight of Saturn or do we estimate it through all these intermediate steps based on distances and time and light and travel? Um, so anyway, point being, uh, I have a lot of skill sets. Uh, I bring to the table a pretty decent skill set in talking about science. Uh, you can judge that for yourself. I'm just saying, uh, I, I think, I think it's, I think, uh, it's worth considering me an expert in that field. On the soft reality side, what I can offer is a lifelong interest in um, the soft world, the things you can't measure. I've always been curious about Native American spirituality, um, the paranormal, um, you know, ex- emotions, uh, our brains, why we're here, you know, the, the, the things you can't question or think about following the scientific method. And of course, I didn't really understand the scientific method as a kid, but I knew that I was interested in things and I would ask questions about things and get information about things and research these, these weird things and, and read about, you know, the, the Peruvian people in the Andes and, and traditional cultures and indigenous peoples and what they believed in and, and the, the psychedelic drugs that they used to sort of communicate with the spiritual world. All that stuff was always incredibly interesting to me. And so at the very least, I've ingested a whole lot <laughs> of diverse ideas about things we can't explain and seeing how people try to explain it and, and sort of fail and, and sort of appreciate and understand facts. Look at episode one, for God's sakes, what we think facts and truth and proof are. I have a very broad definition of what that is. Uh, and I necessarily, well, I try very hard to consider all of the options and not make decisions. I mean, I consider myself an agnostic spiritually because I'm simply saying, I don't know. I can't make a decision about what God is real because there's no way to know. And that's a good example of a soft science. You can't know which God is real or whether a God is real. You can't. It's in the realm of the unknowable. Maybe one day we will. I, for one, believe that we as humans don't have the machinery to be able to do that. And so that's, that's a good example of something you can, that would go on the soft side. You can't use science. You can't science your way to God. Uh, just like you can't sort of um, navel gaze your way to saying how much Jupiter weighs. There are two techniques. Again, reality bifurcates into two kind of paradigmatic ways humans understand them. One is to use science, and it works on a very limited and a very small subset of the world that falls in the physical world that's composed of matter, that's things that we can measure, whatever the definitions are. It's a small subset of the world, and it works pretty well. And people take it way too seriously. And let's just sort of, you know, I'm going to soften up the hard reality (laughs) right off the bat. But I do like the idea of the scientific method. And if you use science correctly and to arrive at evidence and then take that evidence into a discourse and build a consensus about what we currently 
happen to believe and have faith in what is real and then follow that path, always with an open mind that we could be wrong. Okay, I'm behind that as being science. And if that's what science is, yeah. But it still only represents a small part of what we know. This other part, we don't have a good handle on. There's no standardized way to gaze at your navel. There's no standardized philosophical approach. For God's sakes, if there's one thing I could say about philosophy is every single philosopher has a completely different idea to the point that it almost seems like the point of philosophy is to not be like everybody else and to fight a consensus and to you know never come to any kind of uh, conclusions. Uh, although I don't believe that's true. Um, it definitely seems weird. Once you call yourself a philosopher, it's like you're screwed. Um, but you know, all the religions, all the philosophies, all the psychologies, all of the, all of the, uh, indigenous cultures and, uh, belief systems fall into, um, either something that can't be definitively identified or concluded, or decided, or determined, or measured, and really, does it need to be? Do we need to know the emotional state of every human in the world at any given time? I mean, that that would be helpful uh, in in ways that may prevent crimes or murders, or uh, you know, and and help people be happier or whatever. That maybe that'd be nice, but we're not going to do that in the same way that we measure weather um, features in the atmosphere all over the planet constantly to, you know, protect us from storms or things like that. Because we can. We're not going to set up a climate, uh, 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 an emotional climate monitoring system for people because we don't know how to do it. We don't know what we'd measure. It's way over our heads. Um, Science has failed miserably as an approach to being able to do that, though it may be just as important in doing it. But the key is, I I bring some credibility to the table when discussing science. I've, I've done the things that scientists do. I had a very blossoming and promising scientific career. I was probably in the top 5% of my, my cohort. And, it, you know, by all intents and purposes, there's no reason I shouldn't have gone on to excel in that field. Whatever that means, I just decided I didn't need that anymore or want to do that or that my contribution lie elsewhere. Uh, and I also have a lifelong interest in understanding stuff and researching me, the world, nonfiction. That's all I read. And, you know, I read fiction too. So I have, I have, I am creative. I play music. I have that side. It's not all, um, you know, a pursuit of, of information. It's just, yeah, I understand research, learning and, and, and knowledge. I don't remember very well, uh, but I have exposed myself to a grotesque amount of what I think is diverse information. Now, that's in a quarter will get you a hot cup of jack squat. But it does mean something that I have had 10 years of basically cognitive behavioral therapy. I've tried um, various psychological techniques. I have sought coaches and currently practice with a healer um, weekly to better understand the nature of the human condition. And that's how I've arrived at the R versus should problem. I've gone through a 10-year, longer than 10-year process of figuring out what's wrong with me. Spoiler alert, nothing. Um, And in the process of realizing that, learned a lot about our current state of knowledge with respect to being a human being on the planet. Again, 
Science is a small part of that, but the rest of it is really big. We know a lot about a few things, and we know very little about most things. And I'm and I'm comfortable, you know, just saying. I feel like I bring a, le- a level of expertise. Now that's for you to decide. It, it doesn't really matter. Uh, I don't have any proof or evidence of that. I do have a PhD in science, but I don't have shit to show for ten years of therapy, other than uh, the desire to sort of solve this problem. And then emerging from those, you know, that bi- skill set I bring to the bifurcated is a unique approach because I'm not constrained by either school. Now, I was always the non-scientist scientist. I was always um, the outcast in the science world because I fundamentally believe that there's a huge element of faith in science that most scientists ignore. I, I found myself surrounded by pe- scientists who somewhere along the line made this thing into a dogma and so people, you know, it started with me being aware of the creationism versus uh, evolution debate, which isn't even really a debate. And what embarrassed me the most about that was not the creationist trying to, you know, not prove there was a God. Uh, it was the scientists so adamantly defending their position that embarrassed me. And that's when I realized that the scientifically trained people are often very close-minded and put a lot of their faith, even though they would never admit this, into the scientific method to the point of ignoring the potential for flaws. And I wasn't like that. I saw the scientific method as a cool tool that oftentimes didn't work right. Like a Phillips head screwdriver is awesome, except when it strips the threads or the, you know, the, the, the mark on a screw and you can't do it anymore. It's not a perfect thing. There's no perfect tool. Science, science, the scientific method is a good tool, and it's a cool way to get at a question. But what it does is not what many people think it does, including many scientists. It does not produce proof. It does not make decisions. It does not tell you uh, whether something, the reality of something. That's all done up here. And hopefully it's done by multiple human brains. And that is in the soft realm, no matter what you do. Uh, so anyway, if you believe in that, and that, if that's your explanation of science, it's awesome. But, but the, the emergent property that I'm bringing to the table is that I can take the hard problems and the soft problems and cross over. I don't really see it like that anymore. I see the scientific method as being one very good tool and perhaps one of the only standardized thought structures for getting for researching and answering a question or for generating evidence. And I think it's awesome. But again, about two-thirds of the way through, scientists end up turning this thing into proof where I sort of turn this back into the world of the human mind and the public to make faith-based decisions on the value of the, the results. And if you believe that, you can apply the scientific method to anything. And I think this is what uh, Einstein meant when he talked about thought experiments. Let's let's just follow some steps in saying, was God real? Well, let's, let's think about this. First, we'll come up with a question. Is God real? Uh, second, we'll come up with a hypothesis. Well, if God's real, we ought to be able to find some evidence because anything that's real is going to produce matter. Um, well, let's go out and now design a system to try to measure all different kinds of ma- matter in the atmosphere. And then we'll analyze that data to see what that matter is. And da 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 you do all this stuff, and you come to some conclusions, and you realize, well, we were not able to measure any 
matter related to a God. Therefore, we will conclude, uh, what do you guys think? That there is no God because there was no matter uh, to measure that God with. Okay, that would be an example. Now, you or I would say there's a whole lot of flaws in there <laughs> because the assumptions uh, were that um, God was composed of matter. And maybe none of us would thought, I think that's a reasonable assumption in the first place, and it was designed to fail. But there's a great example about how the scientific method can not work, <laughs> but it could also work if you sort of you know, came up with a better hypothesis that wasn't constrained by the matter part. You don't, it's a round peg in a square hole thing. You can use a structured thought process to learn something. What's wrong with that? And that's all the scientific method really does. So let's, you know, so in as much as my skill set is more on the hard side of the equation, I have learned how to apply those skills across the board in a, in, in, a, in a way that is helpful. And sort of related to all those things, my study of science has introduced me to the idea of bias. And this is how I was able to point out that most scientists have a ton of bias because I did the same thing. And somebody pointed it out to me, and I'm like, ah, oh, for God, I did the... I did the easy thing. It's easy. It's really hard to remove yourself from the equation. And so another thing I learned from the hard sciences is how to minimize or try to reduce the bias in a question. And one of those ways is by putting the results out there for a consensus in a discourse-based uh, consensus to, for consensus and, and belief and understanding that that's all it is and that at any minute it could change on a dime and that there is no proof and all these things. So I also think my scientific training bleeds over to the soft side. So not only am I naturally curious, inquisitive, um, not afraid of being a nerd, um, you know, uh, uh, able to admit when I'm wrong, hopefully, and, you know, making a huge disproportionate effort to reduce my bias in the approach and follow through of these questions. Um, yeah, so I think, I think that represents credibility. And this is the same sort of thing that you have to develop when you're going through your personal inventory. You got to be honest with yourself. And in the process of going through, huh, what about this one? <laughs> you know, ketchup. Hmm, I don't, I think I just ate ketchup because I was a kid and it made my broccoli taste better. You know, maybe I'm not a ketchup eater. As you go through that process, you will come up against these obstacles. Uh, and when you do, you know, take that as an opportunity to learn and take your time. And you, this is something that you can't rush. And all of these examples I've given are kind of stupid because what you're really going to be looking at are things like, you know, do I love my parents? Uh, do do I want to be in a relationship? Do I want kids? Um, where do I want to live? Do I like working in the job that I have? Why do I spend so much money on jewelry? Um, you know, these big things that drive your life, and it's probably going to be related to money and relationships and safety, you know, the, the basic fundamental needs. And if you want to short circuit the, I, I can't even tell you how to go about doing this because sometimes starting with the stupid stuff is fun. Like I used to break dance when I was a kid and I could look at that and go, did I you know, and then I was made fun of a lot and I sort of, I just quit dancing. And now like even at weddings and stuff, I'm terrified of dancing 
presumably because I don't want to be made fun of, or maybe I just never was into it. Maybe I was breakdancing because it was peer pressure. Maybe I just happened to like a video that I saw. Of course, this was pre-videos. You know, let's, I, I can think about that and have a little bit of fun. What was that? You know, and in the end of the day, I'll give it away. I, I, I really enjoyed physical expression and music. And I feel like it was stolen from me by bullies. And so I have a big chip on my shoulder about that. But that, that I could take some time and explore. I would love to be one of these people who could dance freely like nobody's watching, but I can't. And I think this is why. And I've had some trauma. One day, maybe I'll address that. Maybe I won't. It's not a priority. But it's a fun and sort of low-hanging fruit to sort of think through of something that seems relatively benign, but ends up actually being kind of important. That's not something I'm just going to wipe out of my personal inventory and say, oh, I just was a break dancer because my friend was doing it at the time and I was never really into it. That's just a memory. No, this is something that means something to me and I'm going to keep it around and it might be something I get into in the future. Uh, so lots of stuff like that. Of course, it's going to be, um, you know, some of the things I hear about a lot now are um, whether or not you like your job, what do you, whether you want to follow your passion. And this is a good segue into something I'll talk about long term is, you know, the, ex- the, the expression of your passion and your purpose, I, I, I'm starting to believe, is the person that you are. And so if I want to come, kind of come back to the are versus should thing, it's not obvious whether or not you should get rid of the should person or you want to get rid of the should person and be the are person 100% of the time or whether the are person is just some naive, youthful dream that you need to let go of in order to be a functional adult. It's not I don't want to come at the R versus should question with a decision already made. Now, my decision is made, but yours doesn't have to be. Maybe nurturing the should is the best thing for you. Um, And maybe minimizing the R or learning about which is which. So anyway, the process of hardening or softening (laughs) your personal inventory is going to get us to the next step, which is going to be about kind of what I alluded to uh, by picking your battles of identifying the key elements of your personal inventory that are going to most influence your decisions. What elements of reality are your top priority? I think that's where we're going to go next time. And so I hope that you have enjoyed my foray into the hard and soft realities of the personal inventory as they relate to the R versus should problem. Uh, This has been episode 52. And if you haven't seen the other ones, please start back over at episode 50. And please refer back to all those old episodes because all 50, all 49 of the first episodes lead up to the R versus should problem. So there's meat in there. Of course, it's going to all come back out, but all of those are are worth watching to sort of get you to the point uh, where we are today. I can't wait to talk to you next week. Please subscribe to my YouTube channel, subscribe to my podcast, follow my blog, leave comments uh, in the blog section or on my YouTube videos, and share your thoughts and help me sort of um, push this into the the, forward direction. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, guys. Chris Bercher, Knowledge Plus Experience equals wisdom. I'll see you next week.